Be seated, please. One of the most striking differences between our modern world and the world that we call ancient is access to food. Our modern world is marked by easy access to food. That's actually probably the most significant distinction between our world and the ancient world is access to food. We don't spend our days trying to find food, consume most of our energy and our thoughts simply to make sure that our families are fed. It means we get to spend lots of time on other important things like Fortnite or whatever else we do. We depend on farmers, of course, but the moment food became an easy thing to access, something you could almost take for granted, our culture changed. That was not the way it was in the ancient world. You always had an elite landed community who hired out the farms, and they were always well-fed, the super rich. But that was by far the minority, a tiny sliver of the population. An indication of the differences here can be found in the astounding logistical accomplishments. One of the most phenomenal things of the ancient Roman Empire was something called the Annona system. It's not as well known as it ought to be, but the Annona system was a way in which the emperor of Rome fed his citizens, the citizens of Rome, the city of Rome itself. He was the great leader, their emperor. His goodwill, his power, his generosity, their liking him was tied in no small part to the fact that he fed his people. You can imagine the logistics here. Rome was a city of a million souls, not all of whom were citizens, of course, free citizens. But still, getting that much food into a city of that size was an immense accomplishment. The Anona was a system in which he gathered food, mostly grain from Egypt, but also meats of other sorts, and brought it and stored it at his own cost in the city of Rome so that every citizen could come and have a cup of grain a day if needed. A cup of grain, of course, is not really enough for a family to flourish, but it was enough to be the difference between life and death if there was a drought, and there was often a drought. And for most people, there was no safety net. The great privilege of being a Roman citizen was not that you couldn't be crucified, though that was nice. It didn't come in too handy too often, you hoped. But the great benefit was if there was a, doubt, a drought, if something happened to food source, you could survive. The provision of food was not taken for granted in the ancient world. This gospel story has a provision of food at the very heart of it. It starts with the disciples and Jesus worn out, in part because they don't even have time to eat. When the disciples send them away, go send them away to go get food. It's hard not to read that as, because I'm hungry. <laughs> I haven't had a meal yet. That's what Mark has just told us about them. So I think you're meant to think that way. But this provision of food, this over-provision of food in the gospel story 
it might strike us as a little bit quaint in our day. A miracle of convenience, maybe. They don't have to go to the supermarkets or use their own food or run to their own homes. But that's because we are spoiled for food. The ancient world did not think this way about food, about the provision of daily bread. But I want to talk about first things first. Some generations ago, there was an attempt by some scholars to, uh, some scholars who liked a Christianity without anything supernatural, which can be a little hard to pull off, but there was a concerted effort, still is, to do this, to explain this story as something other than a miracle. One line of suggestion was that, well, the numbers all got kind of exaggerated over time, and in reality, it was a small crowd, and they became overwhelmed with how they really needed to share. It's a nice little Sunday school lesson. The miracle, one calls it, the miracle of the awakening of fellowship in men's souls. <laughs> Blech. <laughs> Another scholar, no doubt raised on the practice of eating a little wafer in communion, suggested, well, what really happened was everyone just had a sacramental meal from the five loaves. They just all took a tiny little taste, ignoring that nobody did that in the ancient world. Of course, all these ways of going about it, you're having to rewrite the whole story. Everything here in Mark's telling of it says that this was a miracle, a supervening upon the way in which God has ordered the world normally to work. This is the only miracle that all four of the gospel writers include in their narrative. And apart from a skeptical stance that all miracles are impossible, a kind of declaration that means this one is therefore impossible, there is every reason to think this is something that actually happened. Think about it just for a moment. Maybe you've been raised and think skeptically about miracle stories. It's hard not to be. This is our culture, by and large, that we're losing that in some ways. But Mark is writing within 20 or 30 years of the event here of Jesus' death. So not only within living memory of the stories, but there were people still alive who were there. Mark is writing his gospel almost, almost certainly to a Jewish audience. Ancient Israel was not a big place. He's pulling in 5,000 witnesses to this event. If he was making this up or exaggerating it absurdly, it would be something like literary suicide. You could ask just about anybody. Most people in ancient Israel would have known somebody who was there. It's not that big of a country. Any other event of this sort written in ancient witnesses, in ancient texts that were this well attested both in the texts, this close to the event, and citing this many witnesses, every historian would say, yeah, that most likely occurred. So the only reason to dismiss it is if you say that miracles are not possible. But of course, if Jesus is God, then miracles of this sort shouldn't surprise us. And that's Mark's point, actually. Look, he's telling the people who were there, or new people who were there, or the world around, who could go find out and saying, look who this is, who this man is. After all, they're in the region around the Sea of Galilee, right where Peter grew up. Peter's the source behind Mark's gospel. 
This is where Peter grew up. It's actually just a couple miles away from his hometown. And everybody in his hometown would have known about this happening. Jesus could not be other than God if he does this. Mark's okay with that. (laughs) It's hard to imagine the logistics of this. Mark's okay with that. He worked with the power of God. It was a miracle. And it was not just a miracle of convenience. It was a tremendous miracle. Where would you imagine to find food enough to feed 5,000 people in rural North Israel in this region? A market was a small affair. I had the opportunity a few months ago to walk through the market of Magdala. If you've heard the name Mary of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, she's Mary of Magdala. That's the name of a town. And they've recently dug up the market of Magdala, and it's immensely well-preserved. And you can cover the whole market in about a two-minute walk. (laughs) And it was one of the main markets right near this region. It would have been one of the ones when the disciples said, send them into the countryside to get food. This is one of the markets they would have been talking about. There was no way for a market like that to have enough bread and fish to feed 5,000 people. The disciples used this figure of 200 denarii to have to go out and find it. That's ignoring how hard it is to find it. 200 denarii, that's you know, maybe about 80% of a year's wages for one meal for this group. Wouldn't it be easier, Jesus, just to have them go home, right? Maybe it strikes you as poor planning by the people. Why would they come without food? They should have brought dinner. But think about the way Mark tells the story. They're there. They see Jesus getting on a boat, and he's trying to get away from the crowds with his disciples. The Sea of Galilee is not very big. You can see one side of it from the other. So it's very easy to imagine a crowd looking and seeing, oh, he's headed towards that shore and gathering there. So by the time he gets there, already people have managed to come. And now by evening time, there's this enormous crowd that have gathered once again. And the disciples are hungry. And so are they. So is Jesus. But of course they came without food. They just want to be with Jesus. That's the thing that's guiding them. They want to be there to hear what he has to say. And besides, unlike our world, they were used to skipping meals. If they had to miss a meal to be with Jesus, it seems that they were happy to do so. But it was getting late. The sun went down on the roads. It was treacherous to get home on those roads at night. It was very dark. And if the people were going to eat, it would have to be now or never. And that, I think, is the point of the, you know, the climax, the point of tension in a narrative. They must either leave Jesus to be fed or Jesus needs to do something. And so Jesus says, I do not want my disciples to have to leave me. So you feed them. (laughs) Me? (laughs) We've got five loaves. Five. (laughs) So one loaf per thousand people. Let's do the math. Not much to eat. Even a little wafer is pretty generous at that point. The way Mark gives this number is also intriguing. 5,000 men. In the Greek, it's, it's gender specific. 5,000 males. 
It's not because he doesn't care about women and children. It's probably because he's talking about this is a fighting force's worth of men. John is even more specific, more explicit with that point. And Mark says they went and sat in groups of 50 and hundreds. Now, it would have been somewhat haphazard, of course, but that's the way you would divide up an army. A centurion over 100 men and so on. A company of soldiers was divided into groups of hundreds and 50. John talks about, after recording this miracle, that they wanted to go and march on Jerusalem and make Jesus king by force. Mark is hinting, I think, at this same idea by the way he's describing it. It is an army's worth of men on the side of the hill there that day next to the sea in northern Israel. They've come to Jesus as disciples. The question asked is whether or not Jesus can provide for them or shall they be sent away. None of these people were citizens of Rome, of course, so think of the Anona. They didn't have a right to something like that. They knew how perilous their lives were, how precious bread actually was, because you had to have it. Cheap or not, you had to have bread to live. And so Jesus stands over all of these people who have gathered to him in order to hear him and be with him, and he gives them what they need for life. And that's the basic idea of the miracle. Jesus provides for them the central thing needed for life. He's doing for them what even the emperor of Rome cannot do for his people. He's not giving them just a cup full of grain, now go and bake it. He's giving them a feast so that they are now stuffed. They are filled. How long for some of them since they've been filled? And there's still more left over. What is the emperor compared to this? No wonder they wanted to march on Jerusalem and make him king. If a king can do this for his people, well, that's a king that we want. And Jesus doesn't just give them enough to squeak by, right? Twelve baskets full is a lot left over. That's a lot of food left over. He overprovides for them so that they don't miss the point. There is plenty. No one needs to leave Jesus to have what they need. He provides for them. And there's a lot we could say about this narrative. We could talk about a church plant. Let's just pretend. <laughs> a church plant that looks at its own resources and wonders how in the world are we going to grow the kingdom of God in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And Jesus says, tell me what you've got. <laughs> Five loaves? <laughs> Two fish? And God himself says, okay. And he makes his own work and provides his disciples with what we bring. We could talk more about that. We could talk about the nature of God and the kindness of God, the mercy of God, looking on them and having compassion even when he is worn out. God in the flesh, God in Christ, always inviting others to his table, always having room for more, and never being stingy with anyone. But I want to talk just in closing about one other aspect of this. 
and how it's very hard sometimes to trust ourselves to God. Uh, It's hard to trust ourselves to the care of God. Uh, Maybe a preacher's not supposed to say that kind of thing. Maybe you're not from a church and so you've never heard that preacher or from a church where a preacher doesn't say that. Maybe I'm supposed to get up and say it's uh, the opposite, right? It's easy. Come on in. No problems. That's not how the world works. It's not how the Christian life works, how any of the Christian life works. This isn't a sermon, a narrative that caters to what's called the health and wealth kind of teaching. If you come to Jesus, he'll give you everything and you don't have to worry again. Look, he gave them so much bread to these apostles, most of whom were put to death for following Jesus, who, of course, himself was put to death. To make it a health and wealth story is to take one little piece of it out. That's not the narrative here. A couple of months ago, my wife and I had the privilege of hosting some old friends from out of town. Uh, The wife was diagnosed a couple of years ago with ALS, Lou Gehrig's, it's often called, a disease, as some of you know, where uh, the nerves in all the muscles that you have conscious control, the nerves die, and you lose the ability to control your muscles. Um, you eventually lose the ability to swallow, to breathe, to speak. It is a death sentence. Her family was, as you might imagine, rocked by this news. Her husband was a longtime church administrator, turning down better pay at other jobs in order to work at a place that he really loved. And it was a church. Surely the Lord will bless them and make their way easy here. Her world keeps getting smaller because she's able to do less and less things as her body fails. He's now a full-time caregiver at home. And she spoke so matter-of-factly about everything, sitting at our table. Well, this is what's happening now, and these are the next steps that we expect, and, and eventually I'm going to die because I won't be able to breathe. She was happy to say as well that it was hard for her and sad and comes with so much heartbreak. But it makes me think of this question. What does it mean to trust in God's provision in a world that's like ours, not the make-believe world. In a world like ours, what does it mean to be able to trust in God's provision? The overabundance of God to his disciples here in a world marked and scarred by death and grief and loss. She's a good example, this woman. The saint with ALS. A few months ago at Easter, she gave her testimony at her church. She's been a longtime Christian. And she closed her talk with this sentence. She says, I have the great place, great blessing of knowing that all these gifts, she'd been talking about how she's been able to see her faith in action, which is kind of a fun thing to see as a Christian. Oh, my faith actually is sustaining. God is sustaining me through this faith. It's a nice thing to see. She's talked about her adult children, having adult children who are close by, 
talking about getting her husband to have to leave work and get to be with her all day, all the time. <laughs> she says, I have the great blessing of knowing that all these gifts from first to last are from the Lord. And then this is how she ended it. He has abundantly provided for me, and he will continue to do so. What is that except a testimony of a disciple saying, I don't have to leave my Lord to find what I need for life. It is the provision of God for his people. And it can be hard to trust the Lord in his provision. Mark, through a number of word choices, makes a very direct parallel between this miracle and the feeding of the 5,000 and the institution of the Lord's Supper of the Eucharist at the end of his gospel. Go back and look at it. Jesus takes the bread in this miracle, takes the bread, looks up to heaven and blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to his disciples. In both narratives, the exact same words are used. Mark wants us to draw a parallel between these two. God in Christ feeding his people and inviting his disciples always to come and find in Christ the provision they need for life. We come to the table of the Lord to be fed by Christ, to be fed with Christ. It's a token of the same thing, of a great feast. It's why we believe Christ when he says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will wear or what you will eat. In the ancient world, think of this. Don't be anxious about what you will eat, even though if it doesn't rain, you don't know where your food will come from. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We can trust that. And we eat this meal as our own pledge, our own determination, and our own hope and prayer that Christ will do just that for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great provision for not only giving us food and drink and giving it to us in plenty in our world, not only giving us things to wear, houses, a place to worship, bad acoustics and all, but you gave us Christ himself. And you provided the one thing we really needed for life, which is Christ. You gave us yourself. And we get to feed on that. Father, stir up our hearts. Give us faith, diligence to live this one more week at least as your disciples, not going elsewhere for what we need, but trusting in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll stand and we'll respond by reciting with the church all around the world.